One of uh, my favorite t-shirts that I own was actually a gift from Midwestern Seminary. They had shirts at a, at, a, at a conference, and you could pick one for your state. So I got one that has Tennessee across the chest in orange. But under it, it has these words, for the church, for the church written, written across it. So with this shirt, Midwestern is, is making known that their mission is to be for the church, for their building and the strengthening of the church, for the promoting of the overall well-being of these churches by training up people to do faithful ministry. My shirt now is, is almost faded. You can barely read the words on it from washing it so much. But I love it so much because it serves as a reminder that we as Christians are to be devoted to Christ and the strengthening of his church. And I don't just mean a building, but I mean the strengthening of the people of God, the church. And so this morning, as we are spending time in this greeting of Titus, that Paul is writing to Titus, we're going to see in these few verses contained in this greeting the condensed theological foundation that the whole book is resting upon. But essentially, what Paul is saying, everything I'm about to say to you is for the church. I love you, Titus, and I love the church, and it's for the building of this church that I'm writing this letter. And so if it's for the church then it's for us this morning as well. So brothers and sisters, here is the message from the book of Titus's introduction for the church today, and it's this. The church is strong when we trust in the character of God, when we preach the gospel of God, and we, we depend upon or we rely upon the grace of God in all things. And as we walk through the passage, that's gonna be basically the breakdown in verse two, verse three, and verse four. The church is strong when we trust in the character of God, verse 2, preach the gospel of God, verse 3, and depend on the grace of God, in verse 4. So let's pray as we ask the Lord to lead our time. Father, I thank you for our time together, Lord. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would work in us, that you would strengthen and encourage us, Lord, for you are for your church. Father, I pray that you would help us to think rightly about your character Father, that you would encourage us as we desire to proclaim the gospel. And Father, that we would depend upon your grace. Father, help us to see clearly. Encourage us by your word. God, I pray that we would see that our hope of eternal life rests solely in you. And God, I pray that that would be a great help for our souls. So Lord, lead us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So we're going to read Titus 1. We're going to start in verse 1, though our verses for today are 2 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord for you this morning, brothers and sisters. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So as we begin by looking at verse 2, we're going to see that the church is strong when we trust in the character of God. And Paul's going to show this by anchoring our hope of eternal life in the character of God 
and in his promises. And if you recall back to last week's sermon, Chris told us that the main theme of the book of Titus is the need for the church to be properly aligned, to flourish. In other words, things need to be ordered or set in place so that the church can grow and replicate and disciple and serve and, and love in our communities and, and inside as well. And while this need is certainly true in every church, it was especially true in Crete. For the people of Crete, they were notorious for being violent, full of treachery and lies. They were sexually immoral. They were, they were drunkards. In fact, the word in Greek that meant liar, one of the words, meant to be a person from Crete. It was the same word. And so if you were called a Cretan, it meant that you were a liar. In fact, we heard last week one of Crete's own philosophers, Epimenides, says that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul agrees. <laughs> so Titus, as he's staying behind in Crete, as he's thinking about setting the church in order, he's got his work cut out for him. This is going to be a difficult task because of all of the corruption and other things. But one of the cultural distinctions you need to understand about Crete that helps us understand kind of Paul's focus in this book as well is that the people of Crete worshipped and celebrated stories about the Greek god Zeus. In fact, they, they believed that Zeus was actually born on Crete. So he was celebrated for his ability to seduce women by trickery and by lying. That was Zeus's character. And the people's morality reflected what they saw in Zeus's character. But one of the most problematic things about these Cretan Christians, those who have actually placed their faith in Christ, was that they had taken what they had learned about Jesus and they had combined it with their former way of thinking about those Greek gods. Instead of leaving behind their old practices, including lying, drunkenness, immorality, instead they had tried to make their old way of life compatible with their new faith. They tried to merge the two together. Paul says that this is out of order. This is misaligned because the love of Christ is incompatible with the love of any other God. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 6 that you cannot serve two masters. For you will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And so it's with this backdrop in mind, this is the church that he's writing to, that Paul says in verses 1 and 2, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and this is our verse for this morning, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. In essence, Paul is saying that his message as an apostle is about the hope of eternal life. In fact, he's saying that those things you saw in verse one, that faith that leads to knowledge and that knowledge being worked out then in godliness rests upon the foundation of the hope of eternal life that we have that is secure and firm in God. The hope of eternal life is providing strength and support for everything that rests upon it. Now, I have a question for you. Can I, can I be transparent or 
uh, vulnerable this morning. This is something we talked about in our uh, marriage conference this, this weekend, being vulnerable. But I want to share with you, before Kat and I had our firstborn son, Henry, I can, be, I can remember being really anxious about the idea of having children. You know, is it the right time to have kids? Are we going to be able to provide for them? How many should we have? Is our house big enough? What's ministry going to look like after kids? I can remember breaking down in tears. I don't cry that often, but I was crying at a, a pastor's meeting, just weeping and, and asking the Lord for his help to be able to shepherd and lead children that I thought he was wanting to entrust to me and to my wife. Just wrestling and needing to depend upon him in that situation. But do you know what was the most helpful thing for me to think about during that time? It was the character and faithfulness of our God. I knew he would be with Kat and me. I knew that he wouldn't leave us or forsake us because he says this in his word. I knew from his word and from experience that he's a faithful provider. He gives good gifts to his children. I knew that. I knew that we could trust the leading of his spirit. And ultimately, I knew that my life and the life of my children, any that he would give to us, rests firmly in his hand. So knowing that I already had eternal hope for the future freed me to trust in God in this life as I felt his leading. And by God's grace, I have four beautiful children this morning. I'm so thankful for that. But this hope it proved to be a sure and steadfast anchor for my soul when I felt tossed, when I felt unsure. He was steadfast. And the hope of eternal life was steadfast and enabled me to trust him as he's leading me to go. So brothers and sisters, it's okay. It's okay if you have doubts. It's okay for you to wrestle with God with these places that you're struggling to go to him with these things. But always, we need to always come back to the truth and know that we have hope in Christ for our souls. You see, this hope of eternal life provides comfort for our souls because it is sure. It is steadfast and immovable. How do we, how do we know this? How do we know that what I just said is, is actually true? Paul tells us in verse 2. He says that this hope is sure because it rests on two fundamental things, God's character and his promises. The first is this, God never lies, he says. He never lies. He never tells an untruth. He, in fact, is truth. He cannot lie. And the second is this. This hope was promised before the ages began before time or anything else that was created existed, he made a promise to give us an eternal hope in him. And so Paul is undergirding this hope of eternal life that is this foundation that everything else is building on. He, he undergirds it with this first reality, that God never lies. Just think about what a contrast this is. As you think about those gods that the Cretans worshiped and, and thought were right to follow, Unlike Zeus, who would lie to get what he wants, our God, the one that Paul and Titus proclaims, doesn't lie in anything. He does what he says, and everything that he says is true. Have you, have you ever made a promise 
and you've been unable to fulfill it? Or have you ever made a promise and just been unwilling to actually do what you said you were going to do? This has never happened with our God. As you think about this surety of our hope and the reality that we have a God who never lies, have you considered how often your thoughts are actually shaped by lies instead of by truth? You see, this is important for us to think about because we live in a world where lies are seeking to shape you, to mold you, to form you, and conform you to an image, but it's not an image that's reflecting Christ. Trying to conform you to a standard about your identity or your purpose or your vision, but it's twisted and it's crooked. And it doesn't lead to life, but it leads to death. There's different kinds of lies that you might, you might believe, one of which is lies from the world. See, the lies from the world say things like you get to define yourself. That your identity is tied up with your internal understanding of yourself, no matter what your biology says. They say that your happiness is the most important thing of all. No matter if you need to leave your family or your children or your community. The lies from the world say that love is love no matter what the object of that love is or no matter what that love actually looks like. The lies of the world say you need to never apologize for your actions. In fact, also, the only one you can truly depend upon is yourself. We know this is not true. One of the biggest questions of the past year is who do you listen to? Who do you listen to in order to know what is true? You know, especially with the backdrop of the COVID pandemic, how do you discern truth from error in a time of confusion and fear and misinformation, political posturing, fanaticism, conspiracy theories, or any other adjective you want to throw in there? How do you discern what is true? How do you know what is right and how to live? Brothers and sisters, your ultimate, your ultimate hope cannot rest on the words of men or on the science of the moment. Those will change. But instead, your hope must be in a God who always tells the truth and who never lies. But there's not just lies from without, outside. There's also lies from within that we believe at times and live by. And the lies that you, that you have within you might actually be more difficult to spot and to fight than the lies of the world because as they're inside of you, they actually sound like you. It's hard to fight against the sin that you actually think and you believe will make you happy and at peace. The lies from within might say things like, you know, once you get married, once you have children, if you just had more intimacy with your spouse, then you would be happy. Or once you get that new job or a bigger house or you have less debt, then you'll be totally satisfied. But we know that's not true. Because as you achieve those things, you recognize that, that, that it doesn't satisfy my soul. But it's not just those kinds of lies about what might make you happy. It's also those lies of your soul or lies inside of you 
that would, instead of promoting happiness, would promote sadness, sadness and isolation. Those lies that say things like, God couldn't possibly love you. Or your sin is too gross, too vile, and too great to be forgiven. Or you just, you have too much baggage to be useful for the kingdom of God. You have too much baggage to be a good husband or a good wife. You have too much baggage to be a good servant in the church. These are lies from the enemy. Lies that we are tempted to believe. But is the right thing to do here just to continue to listen to the words of the world or even to to listen to our own words, especially when they're lies? Absolutely not. No, instead, we answer the lies with a better word. We answer lies with the word of God, which is always true. We answer the lies by remembering that the blood of Christ speaks a better word over us and our sin. There is hope for the outcast. There's hope for the prideful. There's hope for the harlot and for the self-righteous and for the fearful. And there's hope for the Cretan. And that hope is found in Jesus. So what Paul is encouraging Titus to preach to the people of Crete is that our God is better than any other false god. What you gain in Christ is so much better than what you are called to give up, brothers and sisters. Our God will not lie, and he will not change his mind when he says, you are my adopted son and daughter. You are my beloved child. He's not going to surprise you on the day of judgment and say, you know all those promises I made? I was was joking. I was kidding. That's not actually going to happen. I changed my mind. He's never going to do that. No, he'll do exactly what he says. He will deliver you if you are in Christ both now and forever. So the surety of your hope, that hope that he's talking about, rests and provides great strength to fight against the temptation of lies and, and our flesh, especially when you feel the lure of sin in the present. This hope of eternal life, this reality that God doesn't lie, helps us to fight hard against those things. But Paul has a second thing that he talks about. He says, as he's talking about the strength of our eternal hope, he says it rests in the promises of God in eternity past us. Not just that he doesn't lie, but it rests on his promises too. Now, if you've ever been to San Antonio, Texas, I never have been, but um, it would be an interesting place to go. But if you were there, you might be interested to find out that if you were to drive north from San Antonio, there's a road that actually goes all the way up to Alaska, to the, to the edge of the Arctic Ocean, to a city called Prudhoe Bay. So if you go north, it goes that way. If you, if you turn south in San Antonio, you actually drive a long ways down, and then you might take a little ferry between Colombia and Panama, but it actually carries you all the way down to Argentina. It's called the Pan-American Highway. This road spans two continents, multiple countries, and it's something like 19,000 miles long. You can just imagine from Alaska to Argentina, if you're driving on that road, what are the things that you would see? What are the the sights that you would behold, the smells that you would smell, the cultures that you would pass, all of those kinds of things? It would be really interesting as you drive. As Paul points forward 
in this section to the eternal hope that we have, he's actually also pointing back in verse 2 to where this hope begins. It's not just the end. He's also pointing back to the beginning. He wants us to look down this long highway of his grace and draw hope from God's plan of salvation. Because what God promises in eternity past will certainly come to completion at the end of days. And every step along this path for the Christian is a result of his grace. That's what he's trying to help us see. So Paul tells us before time began, God promises the hope of eternal life to his elect. We see that in verses one and two. This promise originates before time began or anything else was created. But if God makes a promise before time began, have you ever asked the question, to whom did God make this promise? Who is he, who is he talking to? Who would have been present to hear this promise? Well, we see the answer pointed to in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, where he says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And that may not sound like, man, I don't, I don't totally see the answer there. So I have a quote on the screen that I found really helpful as I was studying this week. Tim Chester, a pastor, writes about this idea this way. He says, God the Father made a promise to his son. He promised him a bride. He promised him you. He did this in accordance to the purpose of his will. God the Father had such pleasure in his son that he chose to share that pleasure. He created and he recreated us so that we could share and delight in his son. And the son died so that we could share his experience of sonship and be loved by his father with the same love that his son received. So this, this promise began within the Trinity. Father promising to the son, the son agreeing to die for the sake of us so that we would be free, that we would be his children, that we would that we'd be God's children, that we would follow in Christ and that we would receive the same love that the son receives. You see, the doctrine of, of God's election, it's not meant to be controversial, but it's meant to provide great comfort and great hope to you, the people of God. It's meant to give you confidence in the face of any enemy or any trial. That your standing with God doesn't rest on your own goodness, but it rests on the perfect righteousness of Jesus that he applies on your behalf. Just think about how encouraging this news is. Those who were once the punchline for the worst type of person you could possibly be, the Cretans. It's a word we actually still use today if we're talking about someone, maybe we think they're a wretch. We might call them a Cretan. These same Cretans are loved by the Father with the same love that the Son receives. Their hope of eternal life is intertwined with Jesus. And brothers and sisters, since you are a part of Christ's church, this same hope of eternal life is for you as well. Just as with the Cretans, your past no longer defines you if you're in Christ. It's no longer who you were. For you have died with Christ and you've been raised with him to new life, Romans 6, 4, and 5. 
So what you see as you look down that long road of God's grace is that you have a God who never lies, who has made a promise of eternal life to you before the ages began and whose promises extend into eternity and will most certainly come true for all of you who place your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, personally, as I think about this, I, I look forward to the day where I'm finished with doubts that I tend to carry around, doubts about how I lead or how I, uh, I lead my family as a, as a father or as a husband or even within the church. I long for the day when my words will continually be pure, grace-filled, untarnished by sin or anger, frustration. I long for the day when there is no more sickness or sadness or death. I long for the day where every tear will be wiped away by our God, that we will dwell with him as he dwells in our midst and that everything wrong will be made right. Brothers and sisters, because God is true and his word is true, he tells us in Revelation 24, I mean 21, 4, that, that will come to be. That day is as sure as anything. It will certainly come when all of the enemies of God are eliminated and we, his people, will dwell in his midst, forever enjoying his presence. And so the church is strong as we trust in the character of our God. But we also see in verse 3 that the church is strong when we preach the gospel of God. As Paul is continuing to help set the church in order, he rightly shows the importance of preaching in the life and ministry of the church. Preaching in particular. You know, in the age of TikTok dances, Instagram stories, the proliferation of video and, and, and movies and, and all of these other things, Preaching might seem like an old dinosaur, some relic of ages long past when boomers walked the earth in three-piece suits and Sunday dresses. <laughs> Why is it that we gather together Sunday after Sunday and make it a priority every week to hear a message proclaimed out of God's word? Why do we do that? Well, we see the answer in verse 3. See, God's plan of salvation to the nations, it doesn't originate with Paul. Nor do Paul's methods originate in himself, but instead Paul tells us that it has been God's plan from the beginning, before, before ages began, to save souls. And the primary means by which he makes Jesus known to the world is by the preaching of his word. And what's so remarkable about God's plan is he uses people like you and me. He uses us with all of our strengths and our weaknesses. He uses us to accomplish his saving work that began in eternity past and will extend into eternity future. You know, God could have chosen any way that he wanted to to communicate this. He could have written it in the sky. He could have given this message through dreams of every single person in the world at some particular point in time, but that is not the way that he decided to do it. Instead, the means that God has chosen for the church to grow and be healthy is the regular teaching and preaching of the word of God, passage by passage, verse by verse, Sunday 
by Sunday. Brothers and sisters, we will never move past this book. We will never move past preaching to some other format because something special happens through the preaching of God's word. Just as a rightly ordered church or a properly aligned church, to use the, the analogy from last week, you know, a church that's set in order will have the preaching of the word. We must also recognize that it's the very preached word of God itself that sets the church in order. So the word sets the church in its right order so that then the church would continue to preach the word of God. It's the preached word that aligns us to Christ and it heals in us what is out of joint. And so Paul in his, probably his most famous letter in Romans, when he's talking about his purpose statement, what is the purpose that I'm writing this letter? Like, what is my intent? He says in Romans 1:16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek So brothers and sisters, as we think about the importance of preaching, we recognize that God's word is true. Because his word is true, then we know that it protects us from the enticement of our sins that we were talking about. Because it says that in Psalm 119.11. Because God's word is true, it challenges and corrects your pride. Proverbs 11.2. Because God's word is true, it comforts you in the truth and leads you in paths of righteousness. Psalm 23.3. And it revives your weary souls. And it makes wise the simple. Psalm 19, verse 7. Brothers and sisters, God says he can and he will do these things through his word. Because he never lies. In fact, not only does he never lie, he cannot lie. Do you believe his word? Do you believe him as he says these things? Because he says here that his word makes wise the simple, Psalm 19, 7. We already said that one. It, it rejoices the heart and enlightens the eyes, Psalm 19, 8. It's sweeter than honey, Psalm 19, 10. The word of God leads us to delight in God, Psalm 119, 16. It strengthens us, Psalm 119, 28. And it gives us answers. We asked earlier, how do you know the truth? What is the answer for the questions that we have? We know that God's word gives us answers. Psalm 119, 42. So central is the preached word. So so important is it that Paul, in his very last letter, written just a little bit of time before he dies, he's writing to Timothy, his other true child in the faith. And in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, you hear these words. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. He says, I'm charging you, Timothy, inside of God. He's he's watching over this charge. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. It's so important for the health and the strength of the church, preach the word. And so the preached word is the way that Cretans become more Christ-like. And it's the way that you and I are continually formed, continually conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. 
Brothers and sisters, do you anticipate the word regularly? Are you longing for the word? I encourage you to think about that today and pray that God would give you an increased desire for it because it is the way that we are strengthened and transformed. And as we turn our attention to verse 4, we see lastly that the church is strong when we depend upon the grace of God. Now, you may not know it or you may because some of you are visiting family today, but today is a baptism Sunday. At the end of our second service, we have the privilege of seeing a few of our body being baptized, and I'm so thankful for that. As a father, I can't help but get choked up as I see another father baptizing his children who have trusted and followed Jesus. My hope as a dad, and I'm confident that if you're a parent, this is your hope too, is that our children would love and follow Jesus in all things. And in baptism, we are celebrating this reality that our children have placed their faith in Jesus. But not only are they our children, but we're also celebrating that they have now become our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only are we leading them, but we're also striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. As Paul opens in verse 4, he tells us of his love for Titus. And he, and he calls Titus his true spiritual son, and, his, and he's his brother in Christ. Paul says that Titus is his true child in a common faith. And as you read that, that, that line, it can be easy to just move past it. But I want us to think about the grace of God that's led up to that sentence being written for just a second. Just remember, Paul was once this dedicated Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, who hated Jesus. And he despised the Gentiles. And he was so radically conformed and, and confronted by Christ. God has changed him and transformed him so that he desires to take the good news of the gospel, not just to Jews, but to those very Gentiles. And he is now saying that this Greek man named Titus is a son to him. And that their faith in Christ unites them as one family. They have a common faith. There is no more distinction between Jew and Gentile. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. And they are one in Christ. There is a relational intimacy and a joy that we see here. Paul trusts and loves Titus. And he wants to strengthen Titus for the work that he has in store. But as we said earlier, Titus, he's got a difficult job assignment. He has his work cut out for him in Crete. Just think about some of the challenging things that Paul has called him to do. He says, Titus, I need you to go and find the right men in each city who have the right qualities of an elder and install them in leadership all over the island. Titus, I need you to go and strongly correct and silence those false teachers and their false teachings that have confused and distorted the gospel. Titus is going to have to go and have countless conversations with older men and older women, discipling them how to live self-controlled and sober lives. He's to encourage the older women to teach the younger women to model Christ-like love. He's to train everyone up, it says. And he's to remind the Christians on Crete of their social responsibilities. That is a difficult job. Think about all the conversations, the challenges, everything that is involved in the work that he has. And you got to ask, how is he going to do it? How's, how's Titus going to be able to accomplish this task that Paul has set before him with so many hard things? 
And Paul isn't even there to help him. Well, how do you, how do you, as you think about your own life, hope to live up to the calling that God has placed on you? To be a witness, to make disciples, to lead well in your homes, in your church, to set a right example, to be humble and, 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 and kind and servant-hearted and all of those things. How are you going to shepherd your own children? How are you going to love your husband or your wife? If you're a child, how are you going to honor your father and mother? How are you going to have that difficult conversation with your boss or your teacher? How are you going to persevere in loving your friend who's been hurting so long? Dear brothers and sisters, God will give grace to you in your time of need. He promises it, and there's not one of his promises that will fail. You see, the answer is found in in verse 2 of, I'm sorry, the second half of verse 4. You can do the things that God has called you to do because you've received grace the grace of God, which leads to peace with God. We know this is true because he says this in Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So brothers and sisters, We're able to do the work because of his grace. We're able to do it because he indwells us with his Holy Spirit, bringing us conviction and strength to be able to live out the things he calls us to do. You are already accepted by God. It's important you remember this because of Christ. And your standing with God is secured from eternity past to eternity future. And you have a peace with God by the blood of Jesus. And you are free then to work hard, and serving your church, and serving your family, and serving your neighborhoods, and serve wherever the Lord desires you to go because you are secure in him. And because the gospel will not fail. You see, the hope of eternal life for Titus and the hope of eternal life for the people of Crete is the hope of eternal life for you. Therefore, as you walk along that highway of God's grace, may you be strengthened as you remember that your standing rests on the character and the promises of our God who never lies and whose promises, including the hope of eternal life, are more sure than anything you can imagine. And remember that more than anything, God is for his church. He will sustain you. He will empower you through his spirit and he will lead you in all truth as you continue to preach and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Let's pray, brothers and sisters. Father, I thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that we see that our hope of eternal life serves as such an anchor as we see that it reflects your truth and your promises. Lord, would you lead us this morning as we are getting ready in a few moments to participate in baptism? Would you let us be joyful as we see a picture presented that shows us the the trust that we have in Christ in both death and his resurrection? Lead us in hope and in joy as we sing now and as we see that. In Jesus' name, amen.